Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And for this episode, I've delved deep into the History Hit archive to pull out an episode from the fantastic Chalk Valley History Festival. Chalk Valley is the largest festival dedicated entirely to history. And it's taking place from the 23rd to the 27th of June this year with a stage sponsored by History Hit. This episode is from when Lynn MacDonald, one of the world's leading oral historians and war reporters, took to the stage to talk about the First World War and specifically Passchendaele. Lynn, who sadly passed away earlier this year at the age of 91, was working at the BBC back in the 1970s and by chance worked with a group of First World War veterans. She heard their stories and knew the importance of recording their histories. Overall, she racked up 1,500 hours of recordings and as such, Lynn has done more than anyone to keep the history of the First World War alive. So, I'm honoured to say that here is Lynn MacDonald on her perspective of the First World War and the Battle of Passchendaele. I was quite interested in reading the programme and the part which was introducing this talk, to see that I'm expected to give you a fresh insight into the Battle of Passchendaele. Um, I think all I can give you is my own insight, such as it is, because despite much revisionism over the years, I have changed it very little. As you can see, I'm very old. And there are certain, you can also see that there are certain disadvantages in being very old. However, there was one great advantage, which is that when I was starting this work, there were still soldiers of the First World War around. So I was able to go to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and the horses neighed obligingly. And that was really how I started. Before that, I had known no idea even of being an historian of anything. I was a journalist and I worked with the BBC and I happened to hear of a group of old soldiers, just by chance I heard, who were going back to the battlefields for the last time and they'd been going since 1928. I can't quite remember what year it was, I think it was 72 or 73. 
So naturally, I immediately thought, gosh, this would make a great half-hour documentary. So I went to, to see our head of programs and suggested this idea to him, and he thought it was good. And he kindly funded it to the extent of £30 of the BBC's money. I told you it was a long time ago. <laughs> and I phoned up the organiser of this, this trip and uh, said that I'd very much like to come. And he said, oh, yes, anyone who likes can come with us. So I duly turned up at Victoria Station on Saturday morning, uh, complete with tape recorder and the said £30, and met these chaps. That was the beginning of one of the most remarkable weeks of my life. They were the Old Comrades Association of the 13th Service Battalion, the Rifle Brigade, Kitchener's Army. And they were organized by a, a marvelous chap called Bert Thorne, who was their Hans Sek. And he had met a couple of comrades up at the Rifle Brigade Memorial in 1928, or 27, I think. And they had decided, the three of them, having gone for a beer afterwards, naturally, it was Armistice Day, and that they would like to go back and see where they had been. And so he organized it for the next year, for the three of them. Many years later, in the 1970s, he was still taking a party twice a year. They alternated. One year they went to Somme, the next year to Passchendaele, or Ypres, rather, I should say. And on the third year, and this was it, they went to a place called Monchy. Monchy le Preux. Anyone ever heard of it? Mm -hmm. uh, oh, good. I hadn't <laughs> at that time. And it was part of their action in the Battle of Arras. It was a very minor action. Until that point, what I knew about the First World War was not a great deal. Well, obviously, I'd read all the books, knew a bit of poetry, heard the songs, and had a few received ideas, and that was about it. But these chaps were telling me things that I'd never heard and things that I never knew. And I had a, a marvelous time with them. And the first one, as I said, was to Monchi. So we all arrived at Ostend. And they spoke, they chatted, and talked among themselves, too, because there was something that seemed about being together which seemed to spark them off. And I think probably what it was is that for years, whenever they said anything about it, someone would say, oh, God, there's Father going on about how he won the First World War again. And no one had really listened to them, but with their own comrades, they were able to talk and, and have a laugh and remember things. And it was, oh, it was poignant. The beginning was poignant. We went off in the coach then. We went to Ostend, and the next day we went in the coach down in, into France to, to Arras and beyond to Montre, which is a little place between Arras and the Somme on top of a hill. It was a minor action, but it was very important to them. We, the coach took us up to the top of the hill. We got off, a very steep hill. And at the top, there was a big pillbox, German fortification, covered with ivy and looking somewhat picturesque. And the first thing was that one of them said, 
That's where they had a machine gun. All the time we were coming up this, this hill, it was Easter Monday, 10th of April, snowing like blazes. And all the time we were coming up, we went up behind the cavalry, and all we could see were horses with no riders dashing back down the hill and bodies everywhere. That was the first thing I heard. And it was obviously very important to all of them. We walked to the, it's where the Rifle Brigade Memorial is, so we walked to the memorial. They laid a wreath. We were very quiet for a while. And then we walked to the Salle de Fête, where there was a great reception, and the mood entirely changed. The champagne flowed. There were speeches in Bardlerized French and Pigeon English. Nobody understood a word, but everybody seemed to understand each other. And as soon as the glass was empty, it was filled again. There was singing. They had the most wonderful time, and the villagers were obviously very pleased to see them. And you could see two guys conversing, one French who didn't speak any English, one English who didn't speak any French, but somehow or other they were having a conversation. And it was just like it must have been the war that we would hear things like saying, compris, no, oui. <laughs> that was about it, but they somehow knew what they were talking about, and it was clear that there was a terrific bond between them. So um, we, when, when we went back in the coach, again, the mood was pretty relaxed, shall we say. I remember Fred White took out his mouth organ, and he took out his teeth, the better to play it. <laughs> and they started singing war songs, which were quite unfamiliar to me. I mean, I knew the tune, but not the words. <laughs> they were quite different. And uh, they were, had a, an extremely jolly time all the way back. However, it was a most extraordinary week because naturally uh, I interviewed them all and they were all very anxious to talk. And they were very generous with their recollections and with their tales. And the important thing then as now was to listen. And the more you listened, the more you heard. And they were remarkable. So over the next few months, I was preparing this program, which was called Last Trip to Monchi, and is still lurking somewhere in the archives of BBC, I imagine. Um, and it was a good program. It was good. It worked. It won a prize, Sony Prize. You know, it wasn't a big deal. but. They were very pleased with it. I even got Fred White, he of the mouth organ, to present it. He was, he was a real cockney and he was really good. He was, he was a natural. And he did the links in the program and, and it was all they, were all, they were very pleased. And it was while I was doing this that I realized that this was a view and a truth which had not really been told before. And it was, it was all new to me, and I was fairly clued up about things in those days. And, but it hadn't been documented. And, well, over the course of that work, I thought that I would like to write a book from their point of view and to tell that truth which I had learned. I don't mean truth in the sense of anything pompous, just the view. And that was the start. 
it was quite a complicated process because obviously it wasn't just the old soldiers and I had to find a lot of other old soldiers and they were very good about that say oh I got a pal in Leeds if so and so and 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 he was with us or he was with another battalion and I gradually I accumulated them they also advertised were you at Ypres in 1917 and in places where um, people retired people like places like Worthing well, my own mother had retired and lived at the time, and uh, various other places like that. So I had soon many hundreds of replies. They were obviously very keen to to be a, be a part of this, and I then got on with it. I started talking to them, started interviewing, went all over the country. But I didn't want to write an oral history, and it actually slightly gets up my nose when people describe my work as an oral history because um, I just feel that it's another point of view. The experience of war, and I think the experience of war is what matters. Why Passchendaele? Well, when you think of the First World War, there are three words that seem to come back and haunt people over the years. Somme, Verdun, especially for the French, and Passchendaele. Now, Passchendaele was not the objective of the battle. Passchendaele was an insignificant village on the top of the ridges that surround the old city of Ypres, a medieval city surrounded by its ramparts, down in the low ground, the ridges round about. It's been described as like a saucer with Ypres in the hollow in the middle and the ridges going up round about it and enclosing it, almost enclosing it. This was the Ypres salient. It wasn't meant to be captured. That wasn't the object of the exercise. It was just going to be a staging post on the road to victory. It didn't feature in the original battle plan. The idea was quite different. It had a strategy and it had an object which is more than the Somme did, for example. I mean, they weren't going anywhere except just to break the line and to support the French and to support Neville and so on. But here, the idea was to break out of the salient, get over the ridges, down into the plain, capture the German railhead, advance a bit to the north and swing round and capture the ports of Ostend and Zeebrugge from the rear, while there was an amphibious attack from the sea. Why that? Because we were using, losing a tremendous amount of shipping and by U-boat action in the Atlantic. And of course, as an island, we desperately relied on, on ships and bringing in supplies and food and everything. But that was in 1916. And Haig, who had just become commander-in-chief, was very keen on this. And it, I mean, as a soldier, as a military man, you could see that it was a good idea, a great real objective. But the fact was that by 1917, the shipping losses had diminished very considerably because the convoy system had been introduced. So there was less of a reason, really, to do this great strategic plan of breaking out and capturing the ports. 
And in any event, actually, I rather think that the the U-boats the were not necessarily operating from there, that they might have been using it for refueling or whatever, but it was really further north in the estuary of Hamburg and, and in that area where the U-boats were operating. So a year had elapsed between the conception of the plan and the opportunity to launch it, though Haig had been obliged again in the Nivelle Offensive to participate in the Battle of Arras, which is where Monchi came in, and that was in the spring. So it was well into the summer before they were able to start this, well in, 31st of July was the beginning. And they could have done it earlier and should, I think, though it's very arrogant, really, in hindsight, to say things like that. But they had the Battle of Messines, where they'd been working for years, driving tunnels, and to get the Germans off the ridge, they were going to blow up 21 great, huge mines under the ridge. Battle of Messines, they did it, and it worked, and the army advanced. This is alongside the salient. If you can imagine a question mark, the Ypres salient, very roughly, the Ypres salient would be the bulge of the top half of the question mark, and the Messines Ridge, the the line along the bottom. Um, So it was an enormous success. But the army advanced a bit, but there was nowhere to go because there was still the salient on the left. Had they been able to attack then, this is the 7th of June, it would have had a very good chance of success because they'd really rattled the Germans' teeth or the teeth of the enemy. Um, Sorry, I'm laughing because I must really stop saying the Germans because one of our grandsons quite recently said, you know, I've just been to Dusseldorf and I've I've changed my opinion about the Germans. They're really quite nice. (laughs) So... That gave us not only a laugh, but pause for thought. I thought, how has he got this idea? Of course, they'd all been up to the battlefields and uh, liked it. But anyway, we'll say the enemy, shall we? The fact that the enemy were Germans, you can work out for yourselves. (laughs) In the interval between the planning of the battle in 1916 and its execution in 1917, the Germans had, the enemy had been building. And they, they were terrific engineers. First of all, when they picked a line, they wouldn't necessarily want to bang up against the enemy, us in that case, but they would choose a line which was more strategic position on a higher ridge where they overlooked or they could defend much more easily. Excuse me while I have a slug of this. It is not gin. And they were busy building, and all over the salient, they had built these great pillboxes. Now, I've seen one in a cross-section when it was being demolished with great difficulty. And the walls were really that thick. And the concrete was poured around a framework of very strong mesh of steel wires, or iron wires, but it was enormous thick wire like that. And you would look at it and think that, I mean, they were almost impervious to shell fire. Though they would, they would rattle your teeth, but I think that you would survive inside. Um, 
So by the time they actually launched the battle on the 31st of July, you will realize that almost two months have elapsed since the 7th of June, when they had managed on the Battle of Messines. And so they, they had lost the advantage of surprise, which they knew perfectly well something was going to happen. And it was very late in the season, but they reckoned it was the first time that they could do that. And it wasn't just, though, the idea of getting to Channel ports. There was also Ypres to defend, the Channel ports of Ostend and Zeebrugge. You couldn't go up the coast because they'd been, the land had been flooded. It's like Holland, most of it under sea level. It'd been flooded in 1914 to stem the German advance. And so the, the only way to do was to try and break out of this. But there was also Ypres. Now, Ypres was very important. It might surprise you to know that I can tell you exactly how far away Ypres is. From the cenotaph in Whitehall to the cloth hall in Ypres is exactly 138 miles and 560 yards. That's not very far away from home and from London, from the coast, much, much nearer. Uh, coincidentally, it's 130 miles, 39 miles from Salisbury to Cambridge, where my husband and I drove down yesterday. It struck me as a coincidence, really, that almost exactly, the, and it only took us four hours with doing it very leisurely. So it was pretty, pretty close. And Ypres was defending the other channel ports, Calais and Dunkirk. Now, to drive from Dunkirk to Ypres takes exactly, driving very leisurely, 40 miles an hour, so even using the motorway, is 25 minutes. Calais is not much longer. So it's, um, it was really, it was a lifeline, and that was the lifeline. They didn't do much troop movement through Calais and none through Dunkirk because uh, it, it was too close. It was almost within long-range shell fire. Most of the troop movement was through Boulogne, but supplies, supplies were absolutely vital. Now, it, it really was the lifeline uh, to England, and I think statistics are very boring, but some of these are quite staggering. It, it was an army which moved on horsepower as much more, much more than any other. It was of many kids in which only horses could get to the places that they required to go, you know, roads. It took 40 shiploads, boatloads of forage every day to feed the horses. 40 shiploads going into Calais or Dunkirk. It took 100 tons of horseshoes per week. That had to come over. And not only that, but the, all the, the food for the army uh, and the, the post, every roll of wire, every necessity from stone to mending the roads down to the last nail and horseshoe, all had to come in through those ports. So Ypres was important. It got to hold on to Ypres because where the Germans were at that advantage they have, they could have jumped down and been through Ypres in no time at all. They didn't do that, but we still had to hold on to it. Uh, 
even though by then, by that time, 1917, it was very badly knocked about. And uh, it, it was, um, you would think, what, what's the use of defending this? But it was, in fact, the bulwark which defended the important channel forts from our point of view. Um, ammunition, of course, came by that route. I mean, quite a lot came to the half. But, and in 19, I'll tell you a story, in 1915, they had brought in a great deal of ammunition and a lot of, you can imagine, the amount of dynamite, if that's what it was, or explosive that you needed for the, to explode the whole of the Messines Ridge. Tons and tons, hundreds of tons, hundreds of tons. But even before that, uh, they, they needed to, uh, they, they were trying to, if anyone's been to Eton, I'm sure some of you have, you know the great crater that's uh, on the Hooge Ridge outside the Hooge Chateau. And this was actually the apex of the salient, and they really had to secure this. So that had, it was captured um, and, and, and held with, with difficulty, but there were German fortifications round about and the engineering officer, Major Cowan, was very anxious to blow these up. But as I explained to you, they were so immensely strong, it was very difficult. So he had heard that there was a, a new explosive, Aminol, and that there was a supply. He knew there was a supply in France. Someone had told him on the grapevine that it had come, I say France, to the army, Belgium and France, it was all France. They, they didn't really make much distinction. So he indented for this, it was a high explosive, I'd have to take crib here, made of ammonium, nitrite, and aluminium. That mean, might mean something to some of you, it doesn't mean much to me, except I know it was a pretty strong explosive, and he wanted it. So he indented for this, say, uh, Aminol, nearly, I can't remember how many pounds, but it amounted to almost two tons. Well, the quartermaster general was astonished at this. So the corps commander sent it to the quartermaster general, said, what is this stuff? And he had no idea. So he sent it to the chief medical officer to see if he knew what it was. And the, question, the answer came back. Aminol is a sensual sedative used to subdue cases of abnormal sexual excitement. <laughs> He had ordered almost two tons of it for a tunneling company of 300 men. <laughs> but the MO apparently added thoughtfully that so far as he knew, there had not yet been any such cases in five corps. So, <laughs> um, um, he got his aminol, though. He was confusing aminol and aminil. And aminol was the explosive and aminil was the, the other thing. Which I just told about. Um, I suppose it was the precise opposite of Viagra, I don't know. But, uh, the soldiers hated the Ypres salient, and you know, you can well understand. If you stand in the Ypres salient, well, in the winter, even if you're not being shot at and shells exploding, and if you're perfectly safe and you're standing on, say, Hill 60, there is a damp, cold, 
that penetrates right into your bones. Now, the soldiers, of course, did not have a nice warm cafe to retire to, as one used to scuttle to. <laughs> I had to go very often in the winter because that's the only way you can put the battle on the ground. You can't, when the crops are down, you can't see anything if they're up. And so I had spent a lot of time in the winter, and it really gave you an idea of what it was like and to, to uh, experience what matters, which was just the sheer discomfort of it, apart from anything else. And as far as I'm concerned, in any history of the Great War, it's the experience of the men who took part that illuminates events. It's almost like switching on a light in a dark room, and suddenly you're there, you're sharing it with them. You could hear them. But the, the fog of war is no idle phrase, because no frontline soldier knew what was happening to five yards the right of him or five yards the left of him. All he knew was his own particular experience. So there's no point in asking one who took part in the battle even what was happening. He hadn't any idea. He only knew what was happening to him, he only knew what was happening to his platoon, what was happening to his mates. But it's that kind of detail, sometimes a very tiny thing, that enables you almost to reach out your hand and, and touch it, or be touched by something trivial that makes you understand. And it, it wasn't all gloom and doom. Um, there was one chap, Sergeant Butler, and uh, he told me a story. He said, it was my first guard as Lance Corporal, and I took the responsibility very keen. About 2 a.m., the sentry reported to me that a 36-barrel, 36-gallon barrel of Vin Blanc was stood on a cart at the back of the estaminet. Well, we couldn't see the sense of it being out in the cold all night, <laughs> so we decided to move it. We got some old rags out of the warehouse. We were billeted in and a brush. It took five of us to get it off the wagon and we rolled the barrel on bags all the way to well past the village. The one man swept the road behind so you couldn't see the track of the barrel. <laughs> it was very clever, I think. Uh, when we got to the, the well, the lads took a drink just to confirm that it was Vin Blanc. Uh, then we put the bung back and lowered it down uh, the, the well with some ropes and a chain attached to the well handle. Next morning, I had trouble getting the guard up. About nine o'clock, two gendarmes came and said to our surprise that they'd lost a barrel of wine. Well, naturally, we helped them look for it. <laughs> well, they searched here and they searched there, and they even looked in the well. We watched them look down the well, but there wasn't a Sherlock Holmes among them. The following night, we, filled the, we pulled the barrel up to see how it had fared, and you never saw such a game. But that was the last of it for our lads. We went back up the line next night, and we never saw the barrel again. We never got back to that billet again, and that was the trouble. I remember one soldier who told me with great indignation of a comrade who was put on a charge for leaving half a, half a biscuit on the on the parapet or the far step in a trench uh, when they were being relieved. And it wasn't until I read the memoir of a Captain McQueen uh, who was sanitary officer of the Highland Division that I fully realised why he'd been put in a charge and the importance of cleanliness because there were rats everywhere and, of course, rats carried disease. 
empty tins chucked over the parapet were extremely dangerous because not only would it encourage rats if there was any food in them, but they made a noise. And if you were sending a patrol out and they had to get through the wire and go through this and it clinked, that would be it. They would give the, the, the fact away that they were leaving the trench and uh, they would alert the enemy. So what they had to do was take the, the rubbish and bury it neatly behind the line. Pretty difficult to do in the Ypres Stadium where you had mud everywhere. But in the Somme they did, and it sometimes was road widening. You can see a neat little bundle the side of the, the road. Um, I saw one once and it had obviously the contents of some parcels from home. There were sort of wrappers from Kendall mint cake and uh, some empty tins of Bourneville cocoa, things that all very neat in a thing. And the machinery of the road had, had exposed it there. It was, it was quite, quite touching, really, to see it after so very many years. But Captain McQueen also read his memoir, this sanitary officer, that I realised that the, the importance of that. Um, it was his enemy wasn't the Kaiser, it wasn't the Germans, it wasn't the war, it was the fly. He, he, was, he was obsessive about flies, and he made a, an absolute nuisance of himself uh, with his demands for the things that should be done in the trenches. But he did something rather marvellous. Um, he invented the self-closing latrine. Now, this was important because there had latrine sap in the trench and latrine at the end of it. And it was a dangerous thing to go to the loo, especially in the summer. Naturally, flies congregated in that particular place. And when a man went there, the flies li lifted up in a cloud above it. And a handy sniper would just keep his rifle trained there and knock off whoever was there. And a lot of men died like that. I really do think, and I'm not being flippant, that that is the derivation of the expression to be caught with your pants down. Um, and uh, so Captain McQueen was an unsung hero and he saved a lot of lives because the casualties reduced. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Going back to the old soldiers, I don't think I've left them, actually, um, you have, to, you have to be very careful. You have got to be able to recognize an old soldier's tale, and I've heard a few of those in my time. And you can't take liberties or guess. Now, that story I told you um, about the son Butler and the, the barrel of Vin Blanc, as they called it, uh, was written to me. He wrote an account of it. And another one, which was written, it came from Canada. So obviously, I had a lot from overseas, but I couldn't go myself um, and you, you've got I nearly fell on my nose with this one you have to be very very careful I'm going to, I'm going to read it to you um, this was by the t- that time Passendale was churned up and, and muddy awfulness and these Canadians were almost on the topmost ridge, ridge because they eventually did capture the village of Passendale or what remained of it which were a few dust peeps and bricks and uh, he was called Leonard Williams, and he was with the Canadian Battalion, and he was with Stokes Mortar um, Brigade, and it was absolutely useless at that point. Stokes Mortars would just send up a fountain of mud and spray, and there was no, uh, nothing not worthwhile. So they took them off this team and made them stretcher bearers. So he said, the whole place looked like something out of hell. We were all under fire all the time, and we just slugged along, carrying the stretchers, hoping for the best. One of the lads from the battery caught up with us and walked along with us. I knew him. We called him Zippo. In a lull in the shelling, as we waded through all this muck and mire, he said to me, what's your hometown? 
Ottawa, I replied. He said, same here. Then he looked around at the mess everywhere, and after a pause, he said, believe it or not, I was manager of the F Theatre. Now, I thought this was a good story. There's a bit more to it than that. And uh, being not unfamiliar with the veteran's favorite adjective, which was ubiquitous in the army, I filled in the appropriate word. And I wrote, a, wrote it just exactly as he said it, with that slight alteration, said, I was manager of the fucking theater, uh, which is what I was sure he said. Well, when the book came out, or the proofs came out, and I sent them to him to say, this is what we're going to publish, is it all right? I got a letter back, and he said, I was, that's absolutely fine. I was much amused at your choice of adjective. As a matter of fact, he said, I put the F dash theatre because I couldn't remember if it was the follies or the frivolity. <laughs> <laughs> However, he added, please don't change it because it's very much how we were at the time. <laughs> now, I could go on about this, the battle and the strategy, etc., but I see. There's nine minutes and 22 seconds left, and, and you want to ask questions, so shall I? Yes. Shall we leave the battle there, because that's just about where it left anyway? We can. Thank you, Lynn. That's great. <laughs> so I'm going to try and direct traffic for the questions for Lynn. So hands up, please. Anybody here in the front? How long was it before the general public back home in Britain became aware of what an appalling battle it had been? Um, I think it was probably quite a long time, not until later. Um, oh, they knew about the mud and so on, they knew about the lice, but there was almost a conspiracy of silence. The, the soldiers didn't talk about it when, because they were sort of half ashamed of it. Remember that generation, cleanliness next to godliness? And they were, remember there was one old boy, um, Brownlow, yes, and he was from Aberdeenshire. And um, when he got home on leave, and he was filthy, absolutely this filthy uniform. And he, his mother said, come on, it's time you got to bed, you're really tired. And he was, but he said, I knew I couldn't go into my mother's clean bed and clean sheets. So he said, I drew her into the kitchen and said to her, and this struck me, the, the words we sounded almost biblical. He said, mother, I'm unclean. And she said, oh, Alex, you're surely not lousy. But she then put the boiler on and put him in. And, but they were ashamed of it. It was a kind of shame. And therefore, I don't think they really talked about it. After the war, they did. And they talked to each other, of course. But I think it was a long time. And of course, war correspondents didn't really get near the place. They just had to take what was given to them by the green tabs, where the intelligence officers who dealt with the press. Lady in the middle. Lynn, um, this July 31st, 
It is a celebration, a commemoration in Ypres, which I'm sure you know all about, um, of, of Passchendaele. It's actually of Passchendaele itself. It's at Tynecott. And I was very lucky. I went into the ballot in January and I got two places. So I'm really looking forward to going again, because my father was in the First World War, and going again and reliving those memories. And I wonder if there's anybody else here going to Tynecott. No? Yes, oh, a few. Quite oh, a few. I'm so glad. I don't know how many. My number was 4,386, something or the other. No, and I thought, there can't be that many going. But uh, that's where we're going in. in it, is, it is astonishing. When I first started this, um, as I said, I used to go out in the winter. And every night I went to the Menin Gate, the last post, at 8 o'clock. And there was hardly anybody there. There was one night I thought I was going to be the only one. And then a man walking his dog stopped. And so there were two of us for the last post. Now you can't get near it. You can't get anywhere near the, 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 the Menin Gate. And special occasions such as this lady was talking about, they actually um, give tickets, give tickets out for these things. It was, it's become a tourist attraction in a way. And it's absolutely crowded. But in those days, you, you couldn't get a bed and eat, hardly. I can see one friend of mine who, uh, who was on one of those very early trips, who was obliged to share a room with two other chaps. <laughs> and uh, that, that's how it was, you know. They, um, you just mucked in. But now it's become quite different. And, in a funny sort of way, the, the atmosphere has really slightly changed. It's changed quite a lot. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sticking my neck out here. There's no press, are there? No. Nope. Are there? No. Nope. Right. Uh, I don't know. That I, I'm sure it'll be very interesting and moving, but and I've been asked if for permission to use three excerpts from Passchendaele as part of what seems to be less of a ceremony, or partly a ceremony, but a performance in Tynecott Cemetery. And I feel a bit ambivalent about that. Of course I'll say yes, and of course it's marvellous that, that so many people do want to go, but it's, maybe it's all right. But I do remember um, the first time I went to Tynecott, I was taken by, because uh, obviously when I was with the old boys, they, they didn't particularly go to Passchendaele that year, and I had wanted to go, and Bertha once said, I know the very chap, lives in Ostend, PD Parmenter, knows everything. And he had been an officer of the Army Grave Service, actually, just after the war, and boy, he told me some stories about that. Uh, when they were clearing the battlefield. However, OPD came, and he'd been an officer in the Somersets, um, just a very junior officer. And he drove me, and he drove me first of all to Tynecott. Now, if I'm after the many times, I took other people to the salient, but I would always never have started at Tynecott. That's where you finish, and I started the bottom. But he took me to Tynecott first, got out of the car, and I was smoking a cigarette. We all smoked then, so please don't look. Stopped 20 years ago, it's all right, not guilty. Um, 
I said, wait a minute, I put this cigarette out. I wasn't going to go into the cemetery. And he said, you smoke your cigarette. Don't think these boys in there wouldn't like one too, and the beer to go with it. <laughs> and you know, it was one of the things that gave me quite a different attitude to it. I thought, right, these are chaps. They're not just gravestones. So you don't have to be reverent. And they weren't reverent. They were respectful. They, they, they come with, but they were respectful. But um, I'm over Fred White. I keep quoting Fred White. I think he must be around somewhere, he of the mouth organ. And he, he said to me once, you know, we don't come out here to see standing up gravestones. We come because our mates are here, what we left behind. And they'll lie here forever and ever. So that was the sort of thing that through the old boys, you, you just saw things with different eyes and with another kind of view, I think, I suppose. It's not anything. But one always had that feeling when writing and tried to convey it. The gentleman in the front. Uh, there's a mic behind you. Such a, such a, a very nice talk, Lynn. I, I mean, I've been listening to over the years and years and years. And I used to run Flanders tours for 25 years, trips from London to the battlefield, First World War. And I spent 31 years in the army. And whilst I was in action at Suez, it was nothing like uh, the First World War, I'm sure. But Lynn mentioned veterans. And I used to have veterans on nearly every tour. And I know Lynn met more, far more than I did, but I had some very interesting ones, which Lynn might like to... He, she, you may know of Billy McNally, because I was taking a tour from a headquarters of Germany of the Sergeant's Mess down to the Somme battlefield, and I had a call from uh, uh, Belfast, and a voice said to me, I'm Billy McNally, I was uh, on the battlefields in 1917, and I wanted to uh, come out and see etc., uh, etc. Et again. Can you, can you take me around? And I said, yes, of course we can. Yes, yes, I'm running a tour from the sergeant's mess in Germany uh, two weeks on Saturday. I'll pick you up in Brussels Airport if you like. Yes, so I picked him up. He stayed with my wife and I. We got on the coach as it came through with the, all the soldiers, all warrant officers and sergeants uh, on the Saturday morning. And, of course, to get to the Somme, we had to go down through Armentiers. Oh. Anybody know Armentiers? <laughs> uh, to the Somme and uh, from, from, from where I was living. And so as we got approached volunteers, I picked up the microphone like this, and I said, because they're all sergeants and warrant officers, all in civilian clothes, but we had the commander-in-chief with us as well from Germany. He wanted to come as well. And I said, we're approaching volunteers now, and it was in British hands for most of the war, except for 1918. And Billy was sitting by my side, and he said, can I have the microphone, please? So I said, yes. So I gave him the microphone, and he said, in 1917, I was here in... Armentiers, and I met Mademoiselle from Armentiers, who wrote the song, you know, Mademoiselle from Armentiers, parlez and he went on like that, you see. I know different words. And, and then he... He <laughs> <laughs> knows different words, yes. And, and, and he said that, you see. I, I met Mademoiselle from Armentiers, I knew her very well, he said. And I, when he put the phone down, one of the sergeants behind us stood up and said, yes, yes, Tom, if you look out, uh, Billy, if you look out of the window, there's a lot of 63-year-olds look remarkably like you. <laughs> <laughs> now, that went on for, we had five veterans on that tour there, and the veterans, I know, I know Lynn will agree with me, they were marvellous, weren't they? They were all 18, 19, 20s in their age, but at 95, 96 years of age on the battlefield, Lynn had them, I had at least 250, and they were terrific to listen to. 
absolutely <laughs> marvellous. Lynn, your story today was absolutely superb. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Question here, lady in the blue shirt. Thank you for your common sense comments about Tyne Cot. I so agree. After the end of the war, you'd had all these people who'd had these horrendous experiences. What was the result after that, as far as how they got on in society, how they had jobs, how they got married, how they were fathers, etc.? Yes, I always think that that is interesting. I always wanted to know where they came from before the war and what same happened to them after the war. And one of the things that really annoys me and has done for many years is how when people write about them, especially in newspapers, and it's much less prevalent now because I think people are more educated about what sort of people they were. But even during the war, you got anecdotes in, in magazines like Sphere and so on, of which I had naturally went to those kind of sources too. And every Tommy was either quoted as speaking in broad Cockney, or if he was a jock, in broad Scottish. And they, they weren't like that. I mean, Kitchener's army, there were five million men under arms in the course of the war. They came from every part of society. They all joined up. And I don't believe in this thing where, oh, every, every officer was a, wore a halo, wore a pair of horns, and every Tommy wore a halo. It was a load of rubbish. That, but after the war, for example, one of the, the old soldiers became a doctor. That was Doc Jonathan's um, a grandfather. Um, had another who became chief tax inspector for Scotland. Now, they were all young, 18, 19, at the time of the war. And uh, many others, who, one who became a stockbroker. And a lot of them, uh, Bert Thorne, the OCA of the, the Honsec of the OCA, he was a marvelous man. He, however, was an exception. He started the war, before the war, he was a storeman with what they then called Guest Keen and Nettlefolds, and now GKN. And he finished his career, back from the war, he finished his career as a storeman in Guest Keen and Nettlefold. That was one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. If he had put one-tenth of the effort into his work that he did into the OCA, he would have been the managing director of GKN, I'm absolutely convinced. But many of them were, um, or another who became a very famous boxing promoter. And they were, they were everybody. They were, I mean, how many people here have got relatives who were in the First World War? They, were, they weren't cockneys and, and ordinary Tommies, were they? They were extraordinary Tommies. They were ordinary guys and not stereotypes. Thank you. Question in the middle there. Was there ever a point at which they looked at each other and thought, what the bloody hell are we doing here? Absolutely. I used to ask them about that, and, and the answers one got were very much, very much the same. Um, quite a few of them said, well, it was the idea that I volunteered. 
I used to say to myself, oh, nobody's made you do this. You let yourself in for it yourself. And therefore, they, they got through it. And, and others, the most common thing, Fred White, he seems to be with me, Fred White, this afternoon. He's taking part. Uh, and I remember Fred White saying, we had a job to do, and we did it. He said it was that waiting, waiting in the trenches that got your wind up, what we used to call your wind up. But the moment you went over the top, your fears all went. You had a job to do, and you did it. That was their answer. I can't tell you more than they can say for themselves. Sorry, the back there. Uh, Len, do you uh, draw a distinction between the volunteers of Kitchener's new army and the conscripts that had to be uh, well, compulsory? I'm recruited? afraid I do, actually. Yes. Could you tell us about um, that? Not in any pejorative way, but I must admit that in the later years, and writing about 1918 and talking to um, soldiers who had been in 1918 and who had been conscripted, some Derby men, of course. Um, it was, you could see the difference in the calibre of the men. They were really quite, and you don't blame them, more concerned about saving their, their skin, especially towards the end of the war, which you can hardly blame them, but, but they were different. The, the spirit was different. Lady in the front. Very much. Um, having read your books when they first came out, would you say that you were probably the first author to collect all the soldiers' stories and allow them to tell the story? I don't know. Um, I don't think so. Martin Middlebrook wrote the marvellous book, First Day of the Psalm, and he found a lot of veterans. I did. I think I was just lucky to have so many and. In the end, I had about 3,000 soldiers on my books, so to speak. Obviously, I hadn't interviewed them all, but it was a great correspondence with many of them. And I had a terrific relationship with a lot of them. And in fact, they used to phone me, and my husband used to say, it's another of your geriatric admirers, <laughs> <laughs> which he will confirm. <laughs> um, and. Uh, I just was lucky. I, I, I had the time to do it. I had the right job. Um, I was used to talking and interviewing people. Though I developed a different technique. I mean, it's not a five-minute interview. I used to use 90-minute um, cassettes. A lot of the time, we just spend listening. And, and, you've got to, and the more you know, the more they told. And you, you could say things which would make them realise that you knew what you were that they were talking about. And, um, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I could say, I remember particular instances where they, they would say they tried to spare my blushes, you know, they thought I was a lady. They were under a misapprehension in that day. <laughs> but uh, they, they tried to spare my blushes and say, oh, well, yes, we were going to mount this attack, but uh, the, we weren't in line, and uh, the, 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 the brigadier came along, and he said, uh, where's Mr. So-and-so? Oh, he's not here. And he said, oh, dear, that's a pity. He said, oh, come on, George. He didn't say, oh, dear, that's a pity. 
and George would hastily revise what he said with a fruity chuckle as he did so. But uh, the, um, it, what was remarkable was that if they related a conversation, that was it. That was what had happened, that they remembered it, it, it resonated. And I, I can understand that because I myself, I don't know whether I developed it, it was because through broadcasting, but I've got an oral memory. I can hear, remember people and hear them uh, as I remember it, um, which is, you know, just a, a lucky break. And uh, I think many of them did that. They were able to say things precisely. Though that means with some sort of um, disappointments. I used to love to take them back to the places they'd been. And that was a wonderful challenge. Remember, one chap came on one of our trips with the old boys. His name was Hector MacDonald. He was from Inverness. And he had been, it was on the Somme, and he'd been on a certain attack on International Trench in, in July, obviously, in 1916. And he wanted to go back there. Well, I had the official histories with me, and I sat up half the night, actually, trying to place this action on the ground. And it was actually quite easy, because it was a two-company attack, and he was company sergeant major. So I knew where, the, and it was an easy place. The, the storm hadn't changed much in, in that particular point, and they'd attacked from this particular road, which runs from Bazontin Le Petit to Highwood, and two companies along there. Here's in the front, company sergeant major, so we had a little coach with the old boys and a few others. And I stopped it at the end of the track and said, well, everyone stay here. I'm going down here with Hector on my own, so keep your distance. So I marched him down to there and put him. And this thing, I think that possibly the only time that I've ever put an old soldier on the ground when I knew it was within probably five or 10 yards from where he'd actually been. And it was just easy to see. There it was, the rise there. We were on the track, International Trench. And I said to him, right, Hector, is this the place? And he put his hand on my arm and said, if you say so, dear. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my great disappointments. <laughs> but there were very few. I mean, I've had others. I've, an old boy, some of you will remember David Watson another buddy of Doc Wilson and uh, Scott. And David, who had a stick, much, a crutch, much like I have now, and uh, we were actually walking along this same particular path, going towards Highwood, and David suddenly ran up the bank. And when I say ran up, I mean ran up. And he said, look, there's a hollow in the ground there. Do you know, he said, when we went over, he said, I lay on the ground and the machine guns were going over my head. I could never understand why I wasn't hit. And now, look, there's that hollow. That's it. That's how it must have saved me. And if someone had marvelous moments like that, I mean, so much that you weren't going to go in the books, you know, because that became something one just did. I mean, you used a lot of it, but more of it was, was just, you know, having a really good time with those chaps. <laughs> One final question for Lynn. There's a gentleman at the back here, yes. Thank you very much. Um, when you wrote your, uh, when you had your first BBC programme, 
that was nearly 60 years after the Great War. Was the audience at that time very much veterans and their families that were interested in that work? Or was there a wider audience of the general public? Well, and I think you... Radio 4 then as now has a very intelligent audience. <laughs> and I think that they, I think it was, it was appreciated and understood. It certainly was well received. So I don't quite understand what you want me to say. What is it? I was just interested, interested really whether um, over time, whether there's a greater interest in the First World War now than perhaps there was um, a generation or two generations there, ago. There is a tremendous interest now, yes, obviously. But it, it certainly was burgeoning then. It was beginning to burgeon then because... I masses and masses of letters from people saying, oh, you know, like this, and, and my grandfather was in the war, or my father is 90-odd and was so-and-so-and-so-and-so. So immediately plonked him down, and he, he, he became one of the, 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 the many, maybe he had something to say. He used to send out questionnaires. That sounds awfully bare, doesn't it? But no, they were just were very simple, and you could get just some basic information of you know, what, what battalion were you in, what dates were you in, and, uh, yeah, and that sort of thing. And you could tell if they had something extra to, to say. My, one of my volunteers, I, I had many volunteers who, who helped immensely. I mean, you, never, you could never do such a job in your own apartment. It was a terrific bookkeeping job and uh, keeping track of that and, and, and everything. So, uh, and uh, you know, they were pretty terrific too. But started off with just keeping all the details of the various soldiers in one of those big diary books which had A to Z, but soon ran out of that. And I expanded over rather more of the house and built up a huge archive of letters, diaries, and various other... It makes me wonder what historians of the future are going to do with, with, with all this email and everything disappears into the ether. Terrible. I could never have done it without the letters, diaries, and correspondence. And now um, all of that is now in the care of the Imperial War Museum. And when I finally shove off, it will be available for the public, for the general students of the future. Ladies and gentlemen, I, f I fear we've run out of time. I think listening to you, Lynn, it's very clear why you've been so effective over so many years in almost being like a custodian of the, the, the memories, the hopes and the fears of, of that amazing generation of, of soldiers. And you become a friend, became a friend of all their families. And it's quite obvious to all of us listening to, to you why? Because you're clearly very, very good at the humour, the sympathy, and so forth. And it's been a real privilege listening to you this afternoon. I know we're out of time. I don't want to fatigue you. But on behalf of everybody in the tent, please can I say thank you very much indeed. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.